Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. Image description is a practice that is often associated with creating accessibility for blind people. While according to some people, image descriptions are supposed to be objective accounts of what is happening in a photo or film, some disabled artists are using image descriptions to critique other forms of inaccessibility. In this episode of Contra, I talked to hard of hearing artist Liza Sylvester about her work, which draws on methods of image description and film captioning to critique popular films, and with them, the broader culture of autism, which assumes that everyone has access to hearing sound. I'm so excited to be here with Liza Sylvester, who is the co-founder of Creating Language Through Arts, an educational arts residency that focuses on art as a means of communication when there are language barriers present due to hearing loss. Welcome to the podcast, Liza. Thank you for having me. So uh, just to start out, could you say a little bit about your methods as an artist? Uh, my method as an artist, yeah. Um, so I, I come to art from um, a more traditional approach of painting and drawing, and that was a big part of my practice for many years. Um, but also felt very limited by what I could say and do with the painting. Um, so I found myself coming up with ideas for um, videos, installations, uh, more interactive pieces of work. Uh, and that's really been my full-fledged art practice for the past several years. Uh, so I, I do create videos. I, I also work with cultural organizations to create projects that are critical of the institution um, and how it's made inaccessible and how it actually enforces this divide binary of normative, non-normative. Um, uh, I also am working on some curatorial things myself with a fellowship through the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, which is having me work with Gallery 400 and the University of Chicago. and. Uh, we will be doing a, a an exhibition um, in the fall of next year that is about disability, but it's really about reaching kind of past this disabled experience to get at the things that non-normative identities have access to understanding better than their normative peers. Um, so take myself, for example, I, I have a hearing loss. I grew up with a hearing loss. It's a big part of my identity, and I can't separate the way that I think from my disability. But I'm much less interested in making work that is just about my hearing loss and much more interested in stepping past that to the things that I understand because I have a hearing loss. Mm-hmm. So interested in, in work that leads out from disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, so what are some of the theoretical foundations of your work and um, how do they relate to your lived experiences? So I'm very much a believer of encrypt theory. Um, it's, I think all things come from an intersectional point of view. Um, I think that we as we have evolved, we can't think of things in isolation anymore. And crypt theory does a really good job of connecting these dots between all sorts of systems of oppression and says that we can't think about disability without also thinking about race, um, sexuality, gender. Uh, we can't think about disability without also thinking about our architectural spaces and the designs that we've created for ourselves. Um, and so I, I'm always going to be interested in thinkers and theorists and doers and makers who are, are approaching things in an intersectional way as opposed to a, a singular way. Yeah, great. Um, so kind of related to that, in your artist statement, you have this uh, statement where you say, my definitions of language and communication are continuously shifting and are directly tied to my own ability to navigate these concepts with my disability. So could you say a little bit about these concepts and how they've shifted and what new meanings they've taken on through your work? So I am someone who is not culturally deaf, even though I'm medically deaf. And there's a big difference between those things. And I think that my identity has been formed, it took me a long time to realize this, but it has been formed by my outcast from normative society. And I think that this is something you will hear a lot of people who have non-normative identities vocalized in some way or another. And so I find more kinship with maybe someone who is LGBTQ and the way that they think about spaces and their bodies and the language that they use than I do with a deaf person. And that's because my access to language and communication is about my inaccess. Um, and I, I see so clearly how my relationship to culture and my how that has formed my history and my identity is shaped by my access to language and my access to communication. And so those things are much bigger than simply having a hearing loss. Um, and, uh, you know, I say this all the time, it's my hearing loss is the result of a simple cellular failure in a very particular part of my body. But the resonance of it is something that it changes and directs my body language, changes and directs my thought pattern, my thinking, um, my ability or inability to stand up for myself and vocalize what I need in a situation. Um, all of those things have been conditioned and, and put through this lens of my hearing loss that is really a cultural problem um, instead of <laughs> this simple cellular failure in a particular part of my body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a really good way also, I think, of explaining crip theory and mm -hmm. um, the differences between, uh, you know, crip theories of normativity and um, medical models and how they perceive our bodies. 
Agreed. So, yeah. Um, maybe we can uh, talk about some of your specific projects now. Sure. Um, so you have one called Captioned, where mm-hmm. you um, create captions for existing films that are not just um, one-to-one representations of what is being said, but they are your commentary on the film. So, for example, um, I one of the films I watched uh, that was on your website, um, there's a character who is addressing an audience, and um, the character is saying, no matter what I do, no matter what I say on the stage during our work, I love you all. And mm-hmm. your caption during that time says, his voice is uneven, his words with equal spaces between them. So mm-hmm. could you say a little bit about your methods for creating these captions and what mm-hmm. they're trying to do? So like a lot of my work, this project captioned, which is becoming an ongoing series of work, because um, I've done it in several iterations, is uh, a direct connection to something that I do in my my everyday life. So I grew up, I went to, I, I graduated from undergrad in 2006. And so I grew up, you know, I was born before um, a lot of these changes were made legal. Um, and uh, in terms of ADA compliance, I think the ADA was, is passed in what, 90, what am I, 92? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was born in 83, and I grew up at a time when, yes, there were modes of access for me, but, you know, technology was not where it is at today. Um, If I wanted to watch a film that didn't have captioning, there wasn't a, a department on my university campus that could add those captions for me and if there was I didn't know about it or I was too ashamed to use it Um, and so I spent so much of my life pretending I could understand what was going on when I never knew what was going on and so those films are the actual material manifestation of things that I would tell myself when I was forced into these situations of basically complete boredom, watching a two hour long film in a class when I have absolutely no idea what's going on because I can't hear it. And so I would literally sit at my desk and I would pretend to take notes and I would fill up that time with my own ideas about what was happening or I would make drawings or I would describe things that were happening or that I thought were happening or I would go off in these completely different tangents of of ideas that were just creative and had absolutely nothing to do with what was in front of me. And so by adding my own commentary to those films that do not give me the access I need to understand them, I am stepping kind of into the shoes of my youth of of that person who wasted hours and hours and hours of their life just enduring these situations that were not made accessible to me. And I I still do it now more than I care to admit as an adult person who teaches at universities. Um, And so I'm I'm giving use to that time and I'm also giving a voice to what my own experience is. And I, I think the, 
I think that the general idea that the disabled body is lacking in some way is false and that always we are having a full experience. And so when I'm sitting there and I'm trying to figure out what's going on and I don't know what's going on, I am still reading the films and I am still writing things down and I am still making use of my time. Um, but I'm also showing you this layer of the film that is true. That is my experience. And so, you know, in that particular film, which is captioned um, the 21st century, century film, there's all of this misogyny and there's all of these social dynamics that happen. And I'm, through my body language that I'm observing, through the body language that I'm observing, I'm picking up on all of those things. So it's kind of like, my commentary is the backseat view or the backstage view of the play that's going on. And the viewers are receiving both the view from the front stage audience, but they're also receiving my backstage view. And I think that both of those things work together and create juxtapositions that are very unique to the disabled experience. So, for example, you just shared with me what he said on the screen, actually, and I, I had no idea that that was what he said because <laughs> I've never seen, I've never seen the film with actual captioning. Mm. Um, but I'm not surprised at all by what you're sharing with me. Yeah. So, uh -huh. yeah, that's. Um, I think this is really interesting and provocative, kind of as a, a methodological model as well. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit about where you're imagining the, an intervention to be happening, because I'm really struck by um, the way that you are describing like your, it's not just your internal monologue, it's also a critique mm -hmm. of something about the way the films are produced or something about like the culture that does not provide accessibility. So. Do you understand this work also as creating some sort of intervention? Does the, does the work create an intervention? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think that, so one gesture that is always important to me with art, whether it's my own artwork or the artwork that I'm drawn to that other people are creating is, and it's, it's, it's kind of contrary to what is popular in the art world right now, which is um, in the art world right now, it's popular to have a minority identity and to make artwork about this kind of identity politics. But so much of the work that I see is flattened and stops at that and is actually a gesture of exclusion rather than inclusion. So. Um, you know, it's about saying, you know, I'm me and you are not me and I'm making this work so that you can see how not me you are. <laughs> um, and I think that I'm, I'm trying to not do that. I'm trying to create gestures of inclusion that people can learn from instead of just saying, you know, I was talking with my partner about this recently, you know, and he came up with a really great analogy, which is, you know, if, if your work is about the color red and you say, this is the color red, everyone, this is the color red. It's red, it's red, it's red, it's red, it's red. Instead of saying, 
what color is this? And having a conversation about it and asking people to question why they think a color is red or not red or asking people to have a conversation about it. Those are two really different ways of experiencing art. And I'm always trying to, to be the second way, which is to ask the question and to ask the viewers to be immersed in the artwork so that they can surround themselves with it and use and and not exclude themselves from the problem. And I feel like I'm I'm not maybe fully answering your question here, but that's where my mind is going. So what I am understanding you saying is that the intervention is about getting the viewers or the audience to question their assumptions about their relationships to disability, for example. Definitely. Um, more than representing a perspective that's um, meant to be kind of like viewed from the outside, but not necessarily mm -hmm. like experienced or engaged with or something. Is mm -hmm. that accurate? Uh, that's completely accurate, yeah. Is there an element of it that's also like an institutional critique, I wonder? Um, and it may not just be one institution, but here I'm struck by the fact that these are all kind of feature films. Um, mm -hmm. So there are a specific type of media that comes from a specific institution. Definitely. Um, I am very much involved in critiquing institutions in general. I feel that institutions of all kinds teach us how to think about disability and therefore they have an incredible weight and emphasis put on them to evolve and they're not doing it always in the right way. Um, uh, yeah, and, and these films are definitely an extension of our institutions, whether they are the extension of Hollywood or the extension of um, a cultural organization or the extension of uh, an educational model. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Um, so recently you showed a version of this project at the Third Space Gallery in Rockford, Illinois. Um, and in that version, you showed 2001 A Space Odyssey. And mm -hmm. um, so that's Stanley Kubrick and then Sunrise mm -hmm. Space is the Place. Mm -hmm. So can you take us a little bit into that gallery space um, and talk about how it was set up and how the films were shown? Yeah, so um, this was at New Genres Art Space in Rockford, okay. Illinois. Um, and the, the title of the work was Third Space, which is my title. Ah, thank um, you. Yep. Um, so, those two films are very deliberately chosen. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I was interested in choosing that film because I found out that the supercomputer from the story's plot actually came from the school where I went to graduate school, um, which is in more southern Illinois at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Um, and so I, I liked the idea of when the material of the film was projecting on the walls and kind of becoming part of the walls. It was also becoming part of the walls near where the story extends from. Um, and so this idea of history and, and actual time overlapping through that kind of material gesture of the, of the projection. Um, but then I'm also interested in 
that film as this representation of a very white male idealization of the future and it has the backing of Hollywood and um, you know the symphony and the, the the cultural context of that film you know it'd been decades since I had seen it but there were moments in that film that I just you can't forget because of how iconic they are um, and so that film was chosen for that reason. Um, it's thinking about imagined futures, it's thinking about technology and how technology can both get us there and not get us there. Um, the disabled body is also inundated with technology in different, in a similar way to this idea of science fiction. So I think that it's so important to think about science fiction through the lens of the disabled body because uh, it is always moving forward and progressing, but always still failing, which is what that film also does. <laughs> um, and then Shen Ra, The Space is a Place film, was chosen um, because it represents a really different relationship to science fiction and the need for science fiction. It was created by Shen Ra, who uh, is many things, uh, a visionary, a, a musician, a, um, a black cultural advocate who made this film that was not Hollywood produced film um, and is, you know, that manifests in different ways throughout the film. Um, and so the, the film in a very interesting way comes kind of like from the material that Sun Ra is a part of in a way that Kubrick's film also does. And they're, they're very different in that way. But they, this film is still about imagined futures and science fiction and this need for creating a space for black people because there's no space on earth. And so they actually are going to be taken to a new space in a different galaxy. Um, and so I see a lot of similarities between, you know, coming back to crypt theory here, between the black experience and the need for space uh, that Sun Ra is talking about in that film and what the disabled body also needs. Um, and the same could be said for LGBTQ and that body. Um, and so I have one relationship to the Sun Ra film. I have a different relationship to the Kubrick film. And my experience is neither of those things as a true third wheel of the disabled body. Um, and so I, I displayed these films really largely in this space. And they are actually physically touching in the corner of a room. And so I present them as the same thing. And the only modification I did to these films, because I, I was interested in them functioning as their historical artifacts that they are, um, is my, my own caption commentary that my own disabled body produces as I watch these films. Um, and so they're shown physically touching each other and viewers stand or sit or are in a wheelchair in front of them um, when they experience them. And they, the experience of both films is kind of overwhelming and touching both of them. And they occupy the space of both simultaneously. And this third space, which is where the title of the exhibition comes from, is framed and created by both of those films. Um, and so I, I'm interested in this kind of amorphous third space that is hard to define and 
Um, the two films are not the same length and I did not make them sync to each other. And so when they play on reels, um, the Sunra film is much shorter than the Kubrick film. And so it, it refreshes before the Kubrick film does. And so there's this continual regeneration of, of new spaces created by the two films together. Mm. Wow, I love that. Um, there's so many layers to this. There's the kind of like contrasting uh like white imaginary of the future and the kind of like black radical imaginary of the future and place and belonging and then there's the um the the kind of like crip intervention of uh you know narrating kind of what is happening otherwise and i wonder like what were um can you give us like a, a a sense of any of those moments where your commentary was also pushing back against or like intervening somehow within the content of the films themselves? Sure. So there were some really nice moments. Um, so, I mean, in the case of both films, there's a lot of misogyny and I talk about all of that. Um, just because you make a film about the need for space for black bodies um, and how that is a positive thing does not give you the path to be completely sexist and misogynistic. And so I'm trying to call out both films when they do that equally. And um, unfortunately, there is a lot of sexism and misogyny in the Sun Ra film, and that is a big part of my commentary, um, and as well as in the Kubrick film. Um, and I, I talk about both of those instances when they come up. Um, there were there were nice moments that I'm not sure, you know, there were these fleeting moments because, like I said, the videos aren't synced, and so the way that they line up, um, changes and reorients itself each time they they renew um but there are so many nice visual similarities and visual carry throughs when the films were played together so for instance um in one experience of watching the films together there were people walking and they felt like they were walking together in in both scenes um or, or the music would overlap and and become oddly synced so yeah yeah well um seems like a really interesting technique to explore further in other sure. um kinds of cases too something i want to ask you about um because it seems like there, like part of the thesis of your work is that you're using these strategies of creating access also as a form of critique. It's not just like a functional thing that you would give to someone else and be like, here's an accessible version of this film or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder what other mediums that method could be applied toward. And one in particular that I have in mind is the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. The podcast is a very specific 
type of media form. And it Mm -hmm. does all sorts of things like their journalistic podcasts and storytelling podcasts and whatever. Um, But, you know, in conversations that I've had with deaf and hard of hearing people, um, including with you when we were getting ready to record this, um, there are a lot of differences in terms of how people describe their consumption of podcasts and the use of transcripts or not. Um, so I just wonder what you think about that and what if there is some way to do that kind of like critique and commentary around the form of the podcast mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, so I think that that is thank you for for being aware of that and being self-critical in that way. Um, so I think people ask this question and there's no quick fix. <laughs> and that's 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 part of why it never gets solved, right? Um, uh, one big problem I have with accessibility modes in general, and um, this is something a lot of my fellowship work is is grappling with um, and what I've done with other work in the past where I'm really critical of this idea of a a normal experience and then a non-normative experience and the division that that creates. So museums, you know, have audio description tours for blind people and I'm like, I have a lot of problems with that. We don't have time to talk about that right now, but um, I think that, you know, you sharing Shannon Finnegan's alt text is poetry. Um, and then some of the work that I've tried to do in the past are really good models that could be potential solutions and ways of thinking about this. I don't typically waste my time trying to listen to podcasts because the general conception is that you need to listen to it on your phone or without another form of access. So uh, right away while you were talking about this, I'm thinking about those readers that can be um, utilized for learning how to speed read. <laughs> um, where they like, you know, words are quickly fastening up on your screen in like a small space, so there's not a lot to focus on, but um, a lot of content passes through it really quickly. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's a thing that could actually be utilized, but I would encourage you instead of thinking about, and I'm sure this is what you are already doing, instead of thinking about, well, this is like the the way, this is the normal way, this is the way that it's supposed to be accessed. And then these are these subpar ways of access. I'm wondering if that could be flipped or, if the the mode of access becomes a work of art, which you know Shannon Finnegan does so well in that uh, text is poetry, or what I've tried to do in other works of art, um, the mode of access shouldn't just be a mode of access. It should be it shouldn't be separated. Um, Joseph Grigley talks about this so well in his exhibition prosthetics, um, where he's talking about, you know, this is the work of art, and then these are the modes of access that we that extend from that work of art that allow or disallow someone to experience that work of art. And you can do like all of these things trying to, you know, audio describe a work of art. Um, trying to make sure the lighting is good enough, trying to make sure it's at the right height so people in wheelchairs can 
can see or view the work of art, but it never changes the fact that the work of art was not originally intended for a non-normative body to experience it. And I, I think that that's key in thinking about all evolutions that need to be made in terms of thinking about accessibility modes. Um, the, the access shouldn't be separate from the thing itself. Um, and I think they need to be think, thought of as, as the, same, the same thing. Yeah, I think what you're saying is really important. And I really like the suggestion also of using that sort of like the speed reading tool or technology, um, because that also kind of uh, captures some of the kind of experiential dimensions of a podcast that it's this sort of like um, live stream of words, but it's but you can't necessarily see or hear into the future of it. Um, and yeah, and I, I'm really just wondering, um, because it's something we're working on in my lab too, is like how to do a podcast without it even being auditory and is it still a podcast then? Can it mm -hmm. can it go to the podcast conferences and hang out with the other podcasts? <laughs> it definitely should. I yeah. love that you yeah. 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 So like I I'm really excited about your work because I think it's giving us ways to think about that and also giving us ways to do the sort of meta commentary on the existing media form. Um, and to kind of draw attention to different norms and where they're coming up in, uh, in these production processes too. So thank you so much for that. Well, thank you for your work as well. I, I just want to give a, a shout out to my fellowship work at Gallery 400 and um, I'm working on some, uh, which is at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, I'm working on forming this alternative accessibility tour um, program there and also a show that will take place in September of 2020. Cool. Great. And a uh, publication. Um, so I'll get the links to those from you over email and we can include them in the show notes for, great. Um, for cool. folks to know about. Yeah. Thank you so much, Liza. It's been so great to talk to you. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you and to, to have you include me in this. Such a big honor. Thank you. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.